worshiping with us today here at uh, Simi Church. It is really an honor to have you. Uh, you know, as Ivan mentioned, we did uh, uh, hire, uh, in, you know, in an intern program, uh, Anthony Clark, and we got his wife for free, which is really awesome. But uh, it's been really great getting to know them, and, and uh, you know, we just really are excited to have you a part of Simi Church, the two of you, and we're really thrilled to see what God's going to do uh, with you. Uh, but, you know, in, in, in kind of thinking through sort of the business things that we have to do as a church, sometimes I, I have some good news and I have some bad news that I need to share with the church. Now, the good news is we have a, we have a functioning leadership group. We call it the CME Leadership Team, or SLT for short. And, and there's some great brothers and sisters on that committee, and they work with me. And, and really, their job is to just, you know, to help me uh, not stray too far off of things, right? Because I can do that. They help me stay on the straight and narrow. But also, we, collectively, we want to see Simi Valley evangelize. We want to see Simi Church grow. We want to see incredible things happen out here. And it's been incredible so far. It's, a, it's awesome to think that we're not even a year old. And, uh, you know, we started out and we're averaging, whatever, 70-some-odd people on a Sunday morning. And now we're close into the 90s. We're already, we're already starting to get some momentum. And that's really, really awesome. So... Part of becoming an organized church was the need for me, and this is the good news, for the, the CME leadership team asked me to write a job description. So I want you to know that I, I finished writing uh, my job description, and for me, the good news is that the, the SLT group has accepted it. They, they've found it to be exceptional, and they accepted it exactly how I wrote it. So how awesome is that? You can write your own job description. Now, there is bad news. And the bad news is they were so inspired by my job description that they've now formed a search committee to find someone to fill it. So there's always some good news and there's always some bad news. Our series is entitled uh, Following Jesus, Hashtag Jesus Worth Following. And the idea behind this series is we want to literally follow Jesus. Jesus. Now, I want to do that in my life, right? I want to be as much like Christ as I can be. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. But we literally want to follow him. But in the series, what I thought would be neat, an interesting twist, would be let's literally follow him in the, the Bible. In other words, where did he go and what did he do when he was there? And so that's the kind of the, the idea of the series. We're going to use the Gospel of Mark, one of my more favorite Gospels. They're all awesome. But Mark's Gospel is short compared to the others, and it's much more direct. Mark, Mark doesn't get into a lot of details. He just tells very direct stories about the life of Christ. Now, we know Mark didn't know Christ personally or probably didn't know him, but he did know Peter, and Peter was Jesus' right-hand man when he walked the earth. And so Mark got a lot of the stories about the life of Peter, about the life of Christ from Peter. So they're first-hand accounts of the life of Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the book of Mark, and, and however long it takes us, we're just going to go from place to place, talk about the place, talk about what happened there, and then see what we can learn from the, the life of Christ as he went from place to place. Okay. Now, a couple rules that I, I, I need to make clear, and we always need to remind ourselves of things, because it's very important to me, and it should be important to you, that whenever we read the Bible, we, we are true to the Bible. We don't get off in our own worlds thinking our own things and come up with our own interpretations, but that we do due diligence to the study of God's Word. That means we've got to get into the background. We've got to understand the context. We've got to have some information to accurately understand 
what the Bible's telling us, what, what Mark was trying to communicate to us, then we can apply it to our lives. So a couple rules. One, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books about the life of Christ, are the same but different. And that's important to remember. They're the same. They agree. In the general story of Jesus Christ, they agree. And many of the stories are just repeated from different perspectives uh, in, in each of the Gospels. But they're also different. Because each of the Gospels were written by different people with different uh, uh, points of view and different purposes in writing. So they're the same, but different. And the differences are most often explained, or maybe the best way to understand the differences between one Gospel and another is to understand this principle, that the Gospels are partially chronological. In other words, they generally follow a timeline. But that's not what they intended to do. That wasn't their purpose. They didn't try to chronological, chronologically follow the life of Christ. They're partially chronologic. They're also partially thematic. In other words, there's different themes that they wanted us to know. And so when you take those two things, you have a, the story of somebody's life and you have four different perspectives and each of the, the authors has their own uh, uh, purpose and their own perspective in writing, and then they, none of them uh, uh, seek to be chronologic, but they seek to be both chronologic or partially chronologic and partially thematic, you're going to get differences between the four Gospels. That doesn't mean they're in error or they're in conflict or that they disagree. It just means they're different. You think of sitting around the dinner table at home and you're telling stories, your family, and they start talking about Uncle So-and-so, right? And, and then the stories about Uncle So-and-so just start coming, right? So we start off with a, with a theme or, or, or a, a point in time. Uncle So-and-so, remember the time when he uh, was washing the car, right? And then, oh yeah, and the car rolled down the driveway and, and ran over the cat, right? And oh, that was hilarious. So you remember the other time when he, when he accidentally hit the dog? And, and see, and then we start telling the story of Uncle So-and-So, and, -so and we're, we're not necessarily following a chronology at that point. We're, we're, we're pursuing a theme. Well, the gospel writers did that very thing. So sometimes they seem like they, may not, they mesh really well. Other times they seem like they don't mesh, but it can be explained by that simple truth that they're partially chronologic they're partially thematic. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen. And we're going to read verses 14 and 15. Okay. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Last week, if you were here for our, the first, uh, series in our, first lesson in our series, we learned that Mark picks up the story of Jesus when he's about 30 years old, and it's around 27, 28. I mean, it could even be anywhere between 25 and 30 AD, to be honest. But somewhere in that time frame, he journeys down to the Jordan River. And he goes there because John the Baptist is there. And remember, John the Baptist was the E.F. Hutton of Israel. When he spoke, people listened. He was, the, he was the, the voice piece of God at the time. And so Jesus goes there to see John the Baptist and to be baptized by him. In other words, Jesus wanted John to endorse him. He wanted John's blessing on his ministry. The other thing that happened when he was with John is that he was baptized. And we say, well, why would Jesus need to be baptized? And there were two reasons. 
One is to reveal His deity. Remember, He was baptized and the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended and remained on Him. And the people there were like, whoa, what was that? That was awesome. It revealed His deity. The voice of God spoke and said, this is My Son. Clearly, there was a a clear revelation there of Jesus' deity. He was God in the flesh. But it also revealed Jesus' humanity. As a man, as a person, He needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, He had to submit to the will of God just like any other human does. And what we learned in that was, was the really compelling thing in that message was that Jesus did it to get us to draw near to Him. Jesus spanned the gap because Jesus is both God and man at the same time. We are only man. We are only human. He's both. And so only someone who's both can actually bring the two together, can only bring God and mankind together. And we learn that that's what Jesus was trying to do. He wanted to draw us near to Him because He knows what it's like to be you. And it's a very compelling story. And so that's where Mark picks it up. So now, Mark ends that story by saying, after Jesus' baptism in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 13, the verse right before this, he sends him off, Jesus goes off into the wilderness to be tempted. Now we pick it up in verse 14. And these two verses are going to be our entire lesson for today. It's amazing what, what you can do when you really understand God's Word, how much you can get out of just two verses. But these two verses, don't let them deceive you because at first reading, they come off like a transitionary statement or an introductory statement. Mark, in other words, is sort of setting up what's going to happen in Galilee. Okay, here's my transition. Jesus returned to Galilee and he proclaimed the good news. And and then all the stories after this for the next several chapters and verses, Mark's going to tell a bunch of stories about what happened in Galilee. And, 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 And that's one way to look at the verse. And you wouldn't be wrong, but you would be missing a lot that's in this verse. There's a, there's a jack-in-the-box near my house in the valley. And uh, one day I was in the jack-in-the-box and I had to use the restroom. And so I went to found the door. And I don't know if you've ever been to this jack-in-the-box. It's on Fallbrook and Victory. And uh, the door to the men's restroom is like a half-size door. It's very weird. I don't know why. It's like a half-size. And I, you know, I literally had to kind of like, I have to turn sideways to get into the bathroom. Now, the bathroom is a normal bathroom, but this door is so small. That's what this passage is like. It looks small. It looks insignificant. It looks introductory, transitionary, but there's actually a boatload of information going on in just these two verses, and we don't want to miss those. So to set this up, verse 13, Mark left us with Jesus being baptized and sent out into the wilderness to be tempted. From that point... To this point, when John was put in prison, was about a year. There's about a year of time that passes. Mark doesn't address it. I don't know why. He doesn't bring it up. Other gospel writers do. So to fill in some of the story, let me just tell you some of the stuff that happened in the year. All right? First off, uh, Jesus met Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, Simon, and probably John and James. So that's what? One, two, three, four, five. That's the first six of his apostles. He met them during this time that he spent with John uh, out by the river, down by the river Jordan, uh, between the time when he came back from his temptation to the time that John got arrested. Jesus actually met those guys and had interactions with them. 
He also apparently left for a time the Jordan area and traveled into Galilee. And let me show you a map to give you a little perspective. We're talking about this area right here, down around the Dead Sea. This is the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist was baptizing somewhere down there around the, the River Jordan. So Jesus hung out down here for quite some time, about a year, but he did wander around. He did travel, and at some point he did return to Galilee. And he went to a town called Cana, where he went to a wedding. And he performed his first miracle. He turned water into wine. At some point, he left Cana and he went to Capernaum. And apparently he did a few miracles there. We don't know what, we don't know how, but he spent some time there. He may even, even in my opinion, gone to Bethsaida. The reason why I say that is that's where Peter uh, and, and Andrew, his brother Andrew, as well as Philip and Nathaniel were from originally. That's where they were, that's where they apparently grew up. And so he spent some time there. And at some point, he returned to Nazareth, his own hometown. And he went into the synagogue and he told everybody, I'm the Messiah. And they went, get out of Dodge. They didn't like that uh, message. For whatever reason, they got offended and they kicked him out. It'd be like, you know, you going away to college and then coming home and announcing to your family that you've solved everybody's problems. <laughs> and they'd be like, okay, goodbye. Time to go back, go away, go somewhere else. So Jesus did that. He, he traveled around. He even went down to Jerusalem, came back into, into Judea. This is the area of Judea down here. And he went to the temple. And he worshipped. It was probably a Passover, which was normal. All Jewish men at Passover once a year would travel to Jerusalem to the temple and worship. And apparently he cleared the temple one of, one of two times that he did that. He cleared out the temple. He met with Nicodemus. I'm adding some of this for people that may be more familiar with the story. If you're not, it's okay. We'll get on into some of this stuff another time. But I'm just giving you a sense that Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff. But from the time he came back out of the wilderness, after he was baptized by John, and before he decided to go to Galilee, and let's put it this way, officially. He sort of made some unofficial uh, meetings and visits. He met with Nicodemus, uh, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, one of 70 men who were in charge of, of overseeing the entire Jewish faith. And then, and then when it says here that he returned to Galilee, he actually went through Samaria and met the woman at the well. The famous story of Jesus sitting down meeting a Samaritan woman at a well. So all this and probably a whole lot more was going on between verse 13 and verse 14. Almost a whole year's worth of time took place. Come on in. Okay. So all this has gone on. Now, the other door the exit door okay let's all stare go ahead and open it. let's all stare get your cameras out we'll take a picture somebody's knocking on a door you could have invited him to church anthony you should have invited him anthony invite him to church what were you thinking so let's get our attention back so a lot is going on here. I kind of call this period of time sort of a prelude to Jesus's official ministry. And it's interesting to think about this. I don't think many of you thought about this before, but, but Jesus, when he left Nazareth, he came down here to be baptized by John. John had a, had a very alive ministry going on. As I said before, he was the E.F. Hutton, 
People came by the thousands to hear John and to be, you know, you know to follow John and hear his message and all that and be baptized by John. And I, I don't know if you thought about this, but the whole time Jesus was just kind of hanging out, <laughs> watching what was going on. And, and he was kind of a part of that ministry. And, and there, was this, there was this overlap. Jesus began to start his ministry and John, as John's ministry was actually going on. And so there was kind of an overlap between the two. It's kind of funny to think about that. We're sitting here at church and we're doing our thing and there's Jesus in the back row, you know, just kind of checking out what's going on, having a few talks, performing a miracle, being awesome. And, and you know, this is all kind of happening all at the same time. Another guy at the door. Awesome. We have all kinds, you know, miracles happen when you talk about Jesus. People just start walking in through the wrong door. That's awesome. Okay, so all this is going on. So here's the question that, that came to my mind as I was kind of putting this all together. Why did Jesus, when he was already down here in Judea, why did he feel the need after John got arrested to go back to Galilee? He had already kind of been there and they had already kind of rejected him. Why did he feel the need to go back? What was the reason? I mean, if you think about it historically, Galilee was like uh, the sticks. It was, it was not a Jewish province by any stretch of the imagination. There were Jews that lived there, but it was actually a very, uh, it was very mixed in terms of different religious beliefs and different types of people that lived in the area. And it was kind of a, a hotbed of, of, uh, of, of conflict and political uprising. If you wanted to be a new rabbi and you wanted to have a following, You'd go up to Galilee and you'd go get some of them because they were kind of more radical, easily to incite into, into fervor. And you'd go out into the desert and you'd get a following and then you might start a little war out there. You know? And then the Romans would come in and, and uh, subdue you. But, but that's kind of what Galilee was like. It was, this, it was this very politically mixed, religiously mixed, very kind of insurgent-minded place. People went there to cause problems. And a lot of problems came from Galilee. Some of you come from areas kind of like that, where there's just a lot of problems, right? Some parts of the city, there's just conflict and, and issues. And it got so bad that the name Galilee, that the term Galilee is actually kind of a mixture of two Jewish words, and it, it really meant the area of the Gentiles. And so it just got shortened into Galilee. And it became a derogatory term. If you were from Galilee, it was like putting you down. It was like saying, oh, you're an outsider, right? Or, or uh, it was like calling someone a uh, second rate or, or rebellious or even just to, to help us relate a terrorist. That's where they came from. They came from Galilee. Judea, as you can tell by the name of the word, really means Jew. That's, this was the area of the Jews. It was solidly Jewish. Up here, it was a big mixture and a mess and there were lots of problems. So why would Jesus, who, who is the Messiah, who came to start his ministry, why, after spending about a year with John down here, why would he go that way and not this way to Jerusalem, to the center of the Jewish faith and begin his ministry? Why go back to Galilee? Where, where, where people even said, oh, nothing good comes out of that place. Why would he go back? And here is the answer after all of this that I thought about and I studied it out and here's what, what I believe God is telling us. Here's the answer. Ready? Ready? It's really tricky. Because God said so. 
sometimes we have to do things that seem odd or unusual or even out of the norm or, or, or nonsensical, but God tells us to do it. Now, now, Christianity isn't this, this uh, you know, stand on your head for three, three years or whatever. I mean, God doesn't say odd things, but sometimes he challenges us to love people who are unlovable, to touch people who are untouchable, to minister to people who can't be ministered to. And you go, why are we doing this? There's no reciprocation. There's no, there's no return on investment, but God says do it anyways. There's times when we just selflessly give. We selflessly offer ourselves seeking nothing in return. And, and we do it simply because God says so. I want you to hear what Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet. He lived about 700 years before Jesus Christ. I want you to hear what he says because this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. In the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. Now, you may remember this map. Oh, let me get that out of the way. This map here. This is basically the same map as this. This is a topographical map. It shows mountains and elevations and things like that. And this yellow line right here is called the Via Maris. In Latin, it means the way of the sea. It was an ancient road. It was there in the time of Isaiah, long before Christ. It was the main road in which people went from east to west and west to east. It traveled along the Mediterranean, and then it turned inland into Galilee. And look where it went, right by Nazareth and passed many of the towns in Galilee on its way to the east. Jesus understood that there was a prophecy that was given by God through the prophet Isaiah 700 years, before, 700 years ago, before he even lived, that said God would honor the Galileans by the way of the sea. This is the route Jesus would have taken many times in his life, and certainly at times when he was in Galilee, going from town to town and village to village, spreading his message and his method, spreading the gospel, the message of God throughout the land of Galilee. There's about, at the time of Jesus, about 240 towns and villages in Galilee. And, and, and Jesus, when he goes to Galilee, as verse 14 said, spent probably a year and a half there. It is absolutely possible, in fact, it's likely that Jesus literally went to every one of the towns and villages in Galilee. That he really did uh, bring honor to the Galileans by his presence and by his message to the people. Sometimes, God will ask us to do things that don't always seem to make sense. But when the Spirit says go, we go. Amen. Jesus could have said, look, I've already been there a couple times, and I got kicked back out. But the Spirit said go, and so he went. And he left uh, Judea, in the area where John was, and he returned to Galilee, not for the first time, but for the second time. Now, this brings me to another thought that dawned on me. When, when, when you know, Jesus went the first time, clearly the people weren't ready. And so they rejected him. But the second time, a whole year had passed, and Jesus had gotten John's endorsement when he was down spending time with John for a year. He actually began to get a, few, a small gathering of followers when he was down here. He actually performed a couple miracles, and he, actually, and he went to the temple and he cleared it. 
Now, this was during a Passover when most of the Jewish people from all over, including Galilee, maybe a couple million men, were at Jerusalem worshiping at the temple. My point is, is Jesus, His Word, His name, his, the awareness of who He was became relevant. It became popular. And when He cleared the temple, there was a clear like, did you guys hear what just happened yesterday? Oh yeah, I was there. This guy, Jesus, he was kind of with John, but now he's doing this. It gave him a tremendous amount of credibility to have done all those things he did in that year, especially the clearing of the temple. So when he went back the second time, the Galileans were more ready to hear him. Like I said, you think of yourself as a college student, you get out of college, you graduate day one, you go home and you tell your family how it's been messed up since the start and you're here to fix everything because you have an education. Now compare that with the guy who goes through college, gets married, raises a great family, has lots of life experience, becomes a real expert in relationships and things like that, becomes well-known, writes books, is successful, then goes home and says, oh, uh, you know, I want to I help. People will be more receptive the second time than they would be the first time. And that's kind of what happened. People knew Jesus was important. He was a five-star recruit. He was awesome. They got that. But after about a year with John and then what he did in Jerusalem and the little travels he did, that little prelude to his ministry, the people in Galilee were finally more willing, more ready to accept his message and to accept his his method and, and to hear what he had to say. He had some notoriety now you know god sometimes will ask us to do unusual things because he says so but sometimes he also asks us to go back and do the same things again and again and again because it some things just take more than one try i'm so grateful for the person who invited my wife to church some 20-something years ago again and again and again. She didn't come out on the first invitation. She didn't come out on the second invitation. She didn't come out on the third invitation. It took many invitations before she finally came to something and then got interested in studying the Bible. That would never have happened if that person wasn't willing to go back again and again and again. There are people that God wants you to influence. There are people that God wants you to minister to. There are people that God wants you to to have an effect on. And you may say, well, I've done this already. I've done this three times. But it wasn't ready for the Spirit yet. The Spirit wasn't ready yet. It wasn't wrong. It was good that you did all that. But now the Spirit's saying, go again for the fourth time, for the fifth time, for the tenth time, because maybe now they'll listen this one on this time. So not only do we have to do things occasionally that the Spirit calls us to do that we may not think of, but sometimes we got to do them again and again and again before they are willing to listen. So that is sort of in a a nutshell the the introduction portion of this passage of Scripture. Now we're going to get into the text. Now we're going to ask ourselves, what what are the key phrases in here and what do they mean and what's their relevance, relevance to us? So here we are, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, this is the second time that we know of, proclaiming the good news of God. And and this is really sort of the official time. This is now, that year is gone, Jesus has got his credibility, people are aware who he is, and now he's coming back, and he's coming back with some importance about him. 
And it seems to be that the trigger for Jesus to know when it was time to go was this statement, after John was put into prison. There was something about John's arrest that triggered Jesus to say, well, now it's time. we got to go public. we got to get started. And that prompted him to go to Galilee. The beginning of Jesus' ministry is connected or related to the ending of John's ministry. Now here's the question. Why did John have to go to prison? I mean, Jesus could have just started his ministry and headed up, and John could have continued to do what he did. But I put before you that was the problem. John was going to keep doing what he was called by God to do, and John's ministry was so effective and so influential that it overshadowed Jesus' ministry. There was a time for a year where they overlapped, but there was a time where John's ministry had to come to an end. And you say, but why prison? I had a coach I used to work with, and, and uh, we coached high school football together, and, and he would, you know, we were horrible, and we had a losing season all the time, and I didn't think we even won a game. And he wouldn't resign because his mentality was, well, I'm just going to get fired. I'll never quit something I'm doing. And you know, at first you're like, you've got to resign, but then you're like, well, that's kind of noble. You know, you're, never, you're not going to leave your post until you're, until you're told to. And John the Baptist, I think, was kind of like that. He wasn't going to quit doing his purpose, his mission. He, it was just who he was. He wasn't going to stop. He had to be removed. You think, but couldn't he get like, you know, a, a timeshare and go stay on an Isle of Greece or somewhere? Or couldn't he take a break or, you know, go get a, a, you know, a retirement home somewhere down by the beach? No. Because as long as John was around, John's ministry would compete with Jesus' ministry. And so here is the hardest thing I'm going to say to you today, and it is a hard teaching. And I want you to listen to this. The harsh reality is that no one or anything can compete with the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, God says, I'm a jealous God. There shall be no other gods before me. Now, there are no other gods, but we as people, we make gods up. And so Jesus has to say, there's no, I mean, God has to say, there's no other gods. I'm the only one, and I'm the only one that there ever should be, and there's no competition. And that, I believe, is the harsh reality. John had to go to prison. He had to be forcibly removed. Because his ministry competed with the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's very possible that when John was arrested, people were like, what are we going to do? And Jesus, having been there for a year, was probably somebody that people were already starting to look at. And so, okay, it's on. We're starting. And instead of going to the temple like they thought he would, he went up to Galilee to the crazy town. But nonetheless, he started his ministry, but only after John's ministry was put to an end. You know what's amazing about John? We talked about him last week, but he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. What's amazing about John is that he understood this. He said at one point, I must become less, he must become greater. Now there was a time 
when John was put into prison where he really started to struggle. He had baptized Jesus Christ. He had seen the heavens open. He saw the Spirit of God descend on him. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the one. He had seen some of the amazing things that Jesus had done. And after a time of languishing in prison, he began to worry and doubt and even sent a message to Jesus' disciples. Is he the Messiah? You can see John struggling. Like, why am I in jail? Why am I being treated like this? After all that I've done, all the ways that I've served, why did I get thrown into prison? Why is it going to end this way for me? And the message came back. He is the Messiah. It is happening. This is right. And you know what's amazing about John? He said, I must become less. He must become greater. John accepted the fact that God was going to have to remove him one way or another. And that way may be difficult. That way may be hard. That way may be tough. But John was resolved to be removed because nothing can compete with Jesus. Nothing can compete with people's allegiance to Jesus. It's no wonder that Jesus said about John, there was no one greater than John. That's Jesus' epitaph to John the Baptist. There's no one greater than him. You know, we have friends, we have passions, we have habits, and sometimes those things begin to compete with our relationship with Jesus Christ. They might even be good things, but they compete. And the harsh reality is we have to put them in prison. We have to get rid of them. They have to be removed because nothing can compete. Nothing can get between us and our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a harsh reality. That's a hard teaching. I mean, can't this just be easy? Is it that big of a deal? I like to water ski on weekends. Yeah, but you're not there for worship. Or, you know, my kids are in in all these uh, sports programs. Yeah, but if they're removing you from your your relationship with God, if they're interrupting your fellowship with His believers, you got to start asking some hard questions. Is work competing? Is a relationship competing? Is what is it that's competing? Do you have some bad habits that you're just not giving up? They got to go. If John, if God would put John the Baptist in prison to remove him. What do you think he thinks about smoking? What do you think he thinks about you know, casual sex? What do you think he thinks about uh, 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 you know, your habits that are interfering with the relationship he wants you to have with Jesus Christ? You know, it'd be interesting if John the Baptist was here, what he'd say to you. I got sent to prison, and I was eventually beheaded, and you can't give that up. Nothing can compete. It's a hard teaching, but it's a reality. And if we want to be real Christians, if we want to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, if we really want to follow Him, we got to be willing to face some harsh realities and do the harsh things to get out of the way the things that hinder us from our relationship with Jesus Christ. I know for me, in a word, it's myself. It's always in the way. And it's, it's, it's something I have to do every day. I have to die to myself every day. I've got to convince myself to let it go so that Jesus can become greater. I made a resolution for at least a month. We'll see how long it goes. 
because uh, I'm a realist, but I made a resolution and, and uh, my resolution was, I, I noticed about myself that if something doesn't go right, I, I literally blow a fuse. And I, there's no reason for that. Uh, you know, the guys here laugh because Sunday morning there's always something that goes wrong and I always blow a fuse. And now they're telling me, don't come anymore early, just stay away. And that's good advice. And I need to do that because I sit here and I get all frazzled. Something didn't go right or somebody bothered me. And guess what I do? I spend the next week talking about the thing or the person and I go on and on and on and on and on. And really what I'm doing is I'm just letting myself get in the way. I'm letting myself dictate how I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. And it just interferes with my ability to be like Christ. And so I wrote this down on my calendar. It's on every day of my calendar. When something doesn't go right or someone or I don't have a good interaction with someone, I'm going to talk more about God than I am them. Right? That's, that's what i got to do. i got to talk more about God than I do them or the problem that's, that I'm facing. And so if you call me, and I'm talking about God, you can safe to say that something happened, and I'm very upset, and I'm trying to change me. Next verse. Verse 15. This is a cool verse because there's a ton here. It's a very what you call, a the, uh, there's a lot of theology packed in this one, in this, this, this last verse. It says, the time has come. You know what's interesting is, is that John's ministry, when John was still around before he was taken out, his message was uh, kind of the same as Jesus. They both taught about the coming of the kingdom. They both taught about repentance and, and baptism. They, they did a lot of the same things. But Jesus added something that was different. Jesus said the time has come. So with Jesus, there's, there's an ind indication here that something has started. Something unique has happened with the coming of Jesus. Something special. Something different. John was more, hey, the time will come. Jesus is now saying the time has come. So the message of Christ is more relevant. It's more now. It's always happening. This is still true today. The time has still come. It hasn't stopped. It's still happening. Jesus is still relevant, and his message is still relevant to you and I today, and it has been from the day he started preaching it. Now is the time. The time has come. Something special has happened. And then he talks about the kingdom of God has come near. Now this phrase, kingdom of God, it's actually a, again, there's a lot of theology here, but it's a, it's a concept that was prevalent in Jewish theology. It's funny because it's never said in the Old Testament, it's never mentioned in the writings of the prophets or of the law, but the concept is there. The kingdom of God is there. And for a Jew, the kingdom of God represented the nation of Israel. It was, it was the land, it was the property, it was the temple, it was the cities, the nation of Israel. That was the kingdom of God to them. And they had a great moment way back in their history when King David conquered the promised land and the kingdom was there. And it lasted for a couple hundred years, but eventually it fell all apart. And so for the Jews, the kingdom of God was now a prophecy about the future. One day, it's going to come again. And today, they're still trying to do it. They're still trying to establish the nation of Israel as dominant in the world. I'm not criticizing that, but that's just their theology. The kingdom of God, the nation of Israel. It was one in the same thing. Now, Jesus says something funny here. He says the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. And that word near is the word uh, meaning spatially near. In other words, reference, uh, um, in other words, physically near. So Jesus wasn't talking about a place. He wasn't talking about a nation or a city-state. 
Jesus was talking about himself. And, and, and one way you could read this is, is, hey, standing next to Jesus is the same thing as standing near the kingdom of God. Physical proximity. So he literally walked around saying, the kingdom of God is here. I'm the king, and wherever I go, and in my presence, this is the kingdom. And if you're anywhere near me, if you're anywhere in my proximity, you're near the kingdom itself. Now, it has a lot of other meanings too, but that's one important way to understand the kingdom of God. It's the presence of Jesus Christ. When you think about driving down the freeway, how many of you have had this experience? You're driving down the freeway, and all of a sudden, everybody slows down. And you're like, something's happening, you're slowing down, and then you see the highway patrol guy, right? And there's like this little bubble, there's like this little orbit around his car. As he's going, all, you know, everybody's slowing down in his presence, and then as soon as he turns, everybody speeds back up, right? There's a, there's a presence around that car that we don't see, but it's real. There was a presence around Jesus Christ that you couldn't physically see, but it was absolutely real. And that was the presence of the kingdom of God. And the benefit of him was that his change is more permanent. You and I, when, as soon as the highway patrolman's gone, we speed back up. But if we truly get into the presence of Jesus Christ, the changes we make are permanent. They're lasting. They don't go away. That's one way to know if you really are a true follower of Jesus Christ. You're not just doing it in certain environments or certain settings or at certain times of the day. It's around you all the time. That was something that really spoke to me years ago when I first came to the church because I had sort of the on and off again uh, presence of God in my life. I would do it good here, but over here it was totally a different story and, and that convicted me. I knew there was something wrong about that and I needed to get my mind right. I needed to get my understanding right. I needed to know that the time is coming, the kingdom of God was near and the presence of Jesus Christ is something that needs to stay with me. The only appropriate response, if Jesus was to walk in the room today, the only appropriate response for every one of us in this room is to repent. That's, that's the response. The kingdom of God come, has come near. Repent. And believe. We do it when the highway patrolman's next to us on the freeway. How much more should we do it when Jesus Christ and His presence is in our, in our lives or near our lives. His message, His method is being taught or practiced in our presence. Absolutely, we need to repent and believe. That's the only appropriate response. So I want to end with this thought. It's the last thing Jesus said here. He said, believe the good news. Wherever Jesus' message, his method, wherever his presence is through his teaching, through, his, through the practice of his, his uh, life, the kingdom of God is there, and that is good news. We should be people who bear good news. Everywhere we go. It is good news when we walk into the room. As a believer of Jesus Christ, when you open the door to the guy knocking, that's good news. When you go and meet somebody in the street or talking to somebody, there's good news to be communicated there. What we have 
in our, our repentance and in our belief in Jesus Christ is good news. In fact, it's the best news. It's the greatest news ever given to mankind in the history of mankind. It is the greatest news of all time. There's no better news. There's no other news that matters. Any news that's news at all is the good news of Jesus Christ. Where He is and where His followers are, there is good news. He's the beginning and the end. It's the good news. It starts with Him and it ends with Him. It's good news. 2016's here. Have you lived 2015 as if you've been having a lot of good news? As if you have good news to share? If not, maybe we need to do a little recalibration here and we need to be bearers of good news. We need to start thinking in terms of the good news that we have. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you do have good news to offer. And, you know, for you and I, the good news may be old news. We've been around a long time. Maybe you've been around years or whatever, and it becomes old news. But it's still good news, and we have to remind ourselves of that. But here's the thing you got to remember. When you bring that news to a new person, it's good news to them for the first time. They're stuck in a bunch of old, bad news. They're in yesterday's news. We're in today's news. And that's what we need to bring to people. The good news. So I started off and I was telling you about the good news and the bad news that I had. Uh, you know, I had gotten my job description written, and, but then the bad news was now they're looking for a minister. But you know, preaching is the good news uh, without the bad. The message of Jesus Christ is just good news. There's no bad news. There's no other shoe that drops. There's no other hook to it. It's just good news. Sometimes we got to go back again and again and again to tell people the good news because they're just not ready. Sometimes we got to let go of those things that are getting in the way in our lives of letting the good news out. And that's, that's the harsh reality. Whatever the case may be, the time is now. Repent and believe the good news. I'm going to ask the singers to come up and we're going to close out with a song. Stand on up, we're going to sing one song to close out.